Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to MPA Connections with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This podcast will be diving into the MPA Connect Network, which exists to connect MPA managers across the Caribbean. In this special series, each episode will feature interviews with managers from across the network to show how this initiative is meeting the real needs of MPA managers by tapping into the wealth of real world experience and inspiring new approaches and ideas for their marine protected areas. Today we have the wonderful Safira Hunt and we will be talking about MPA management and invasive species. Hello, Safira. Hi, Lashanti. Awesome. Can you tell everyone who you are, what you do, where you work? You know, the basic introduction. Okay. Um, thank you for having me on this show today. I am Safira Hunt from the sunny island of St. Lucia. I work with the St. Lucia National Trust. My MPA is the Point Sab Environmental Protection Area. Um, it is both terrestrial and aquatic. And um, my post at the National Trust is conservation assistant, which takes me out into the field, doing all the field work, working with invasive species, and my babies, the herbs. Awesome. So really quickly, I know you just said herbs, which may not be a familiar term to a lot of people. Can you quickly say what that is? What are herbs? Well, herbs, um, short and form for herpetology, um, it's snakes and lizards and all those little creepy crawlers that people tend to not like. <laughs> I definitely, I have a love, a love and respect relationship. I'm not going to say love-hate relationship when it comes to uh, all herp species. They are <laughs> interesting. I will say that. Positive words. Um, but definitely well, worth studying. <laughs> the same could be said for a lot of St. Lucians. And that's mainly because we have a venomous snake on the island. Yes, the venomous snake, which we yeah. will actually be talking about a little later. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a bit about like your educational background, your experience, and, and how did you get into conservation? And, and what made you even want to work with herbs? Like, what, what do you like so much about them? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny enough, um, when I left secondary school, I was a bartender. And I had no inclinations of going into conservation. I've always been a bartender, loved the hospitality industry. And then um, I had my son, and this child would refuse to go to bed until I came from work at one in the morning. So I had to do a switch. <laughs> I had to give up my love for bartending, switched up, went into crafting, joined this group. And um, the National Trust had a project, the Opal Project, back in 2012 which um, enabled some of the crafters to become tour guides to Maria Islands. So I was trained to become a tour guide for Maria Islands, but then that didn't kick off right away. Funny enough, I started volunteering with the forestry department, doing wetland birds monitoring, and um, the opening for a field officer came up under the CPF project to monitor reptiles. So I interviewed for the post and lo and behold, the guy from forestry I was volunteering with was the interviewee. And I got the job. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then from there, I've been trained through the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Academy up in the Jersey Islands in the English Channel. 
um, they run an endangered species course, which is credited by the University of Kent. Um, so that's my highest level of education. And then I've been full throttle into hoops from since 2012. 2012. Yeah, so most of my experience in education is directly from the field. That's, and I think that's one of the best ways you can get experience. But what, at what point did you realize that herps, you know, was your thing? Herps was never my thing. <laughs> it's almost like I got shoved into it. Um, I was the only lady on the project. And because of the fear of snakes on island, they needed a face with the snake. So every time we go out, the main aim was if we should catch a racer, I was supposed to have a photograph holding it. <laughs> and yeah, and so in the pictures that we can see, you always seem to be posing with them. <laughs> yes, because we always needed it for our media outreach. So the mm -hmm. middle photo would be the first time I ever held a solution racer. And trust me, this is a fake smile. <laughs> I was afraid, but then the solution racer is, um, non-venomous and it's a harmless snake it wouldn't even try to bite you so over the years after handling it i became more comfortable handling it and i became the go-to lady for anything semi-sharisa that's i think that's a good role to have you know so i will pop that down so what does it look like when your mba is the home of the world's rarest snake i know you mentioned it a bit earlier so can you tell us a bit about this snake Okay, so the St. Lucia racer is endemic to St. Lucia. Um, right now, the only population is on Maria Islands, which is the bigger of the three offshore islands which falls within my protected area. Um, in 2012, a survey was done and it put the numbers to less than 100. Right, so um, we get conservationists coming the world over down to St. Lucia just to visit Maria Islands and get a glimpse of the St. Lucia racer. Sadly, I think only in all my seven years working with the organization, I've only known two conservationists who've actually seen them. <laughs> wow. So that puts us in a pretty, how would I put it? It's almost like 50-50. Um, we have this rarest snake that we're trying to increase the population of. And because of that need, we also have the opportunity to seek funding to actually put towards our work in conserving the St. Lucia racer. Mm -hmm. So because of that, um, we're on the world map and we're recognized a lot by international donors when it comes to conservation works for the St. Lucia racer. And so what is it like when you go into the community and you talk about this snake and you, you tell people, you know, that it's that rare, do you, because, you know, as groovy people, we know snakes aren't the most liked of the reptile species. Yep. So um, it's also, first thing we have to do when we go out in the community is to differentiate the snakes. Like I said earlier on, we do have a venomous snake, the Senusha Fedalas, which is a pit viper. And of course, everyone's afraid of it. And in Senusha, a snake is a snake is a snake. <laughs> so we have to um, differentiate to the public that the snake we're talking about is the Senusha racer, which is harmless. I mean, we still get the one-off person saying, we're the ones saying it's harmless, but not until 
till a snake attack you, then you will not say it is harmless. So it's really challenging to go out into the community and try speaking anything snake. Um, a couple of years ago, that was prior to COVID-19, for World Snake Day, we actually had a live exhibition at one of the popular malls in the city. And we did have the venomous snake on display and the Senusha boa. Sadly, we couldn't take the Senusha race because of its rarity. Um, so that was pretty receptive to the public. Everyone wanted to come close to the venomous snake because, of course, it's in a glass enclosure. They feel safe. And from that, we've actually done a lot of outreach with the public and the perception is changing. Okay. And you said you've actually held one of these um, vipers, pit vipers? No. <laughs> no. So what, with our formal training for handling venomous snake, you do not hold a venomous snake with your hand. You use the snake hook or the snake grabber. Yeah, so we don't handle it with our bare hands at all at any one given time. But then um, we do projects within the habitat of the pit vipers. So we always have to be vigilant. We always have to have our equipment on hand. And working with forestry department, we always have to go on the rescue missions. Definitely. Now, I know one of the pictures I do have um, is you looking at a camera trap. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing in this picture, what types of things you catch on this camera trap? So last year, after the country reopened, um, from the lockdown of COVID-19, when we got onto Maria Islands, we realized that the dry season was pretty harsh and the area was um, to the point of um, almost getting burnt from wildfires. And then that would have posed a threat to the reptiles on Maria Island. So we decided to put out the bowls of calabash, which is a gourd with water and um, to monitor it with the camera trapping. So in this photo, I am actually checking the placement to ensure that the screen is taking the full bowl of water. Mm -hmm. And a couple of months after, we actually got a racer going to the bowl of water on the camera trap. That's, that's really good. Awesome. Yeah, and this is the first time that the cemetery racer has ever been monitored using camera trapping. So what are some of the other threats to the St. Lucian racer? Um, so there is a, because it's only one population on a tiny island, there's a threat of genetic pool decreasing and inbreeding happening, and then we're losing the whole species altogether. Um, there is the threat that should a wildfire happen at Maria Island, then that's it. The whole population is gone. There is also the threat of invasive species, especially rodents. Um, Mm -hmm. The waters surrounding Maria Islands are a nature uh, marine reserve, and through the Department of Fisheries, fishermen are allowed permits to fish within the waters. So there is always the threat that a rodent can jump from a fishing vessel onto the island, or even after a storm, there can be rodents drifting on debris onto the island. Um, but all this to say that there is a biosecurity plan for the Maria Islands that we have in place since 2013, and we've been monitoring and doing biosecurity monitoring on the islands every once a month, and that in, includes um, baiting with poison bait, rat stations that we have on the islands at possible incursion points, 
to say Maria Islands has never been invaded by rodents. So all of this is just a precaution measure. We also have to um, monitor for invasive plants on the islands and do eradications on site. Okay. And how does that look, those eradications of the invasive plants? Well, it depends on the type of plant. Um, so the moment we go out during monitoring and we spot an invasive plant right there on site at the same time, we're supposed to uproot it. Now, sometimes you get a plant that every part of the plant grows. So the methodology always changes depending on the plant. And Maria Island is used during the months of July up until August for bird, migratory bird nesting. So we have flocks of seabirds coming to the islands to nest. And of course, you know, they feed on the mainland and they go back to the nest on the other island. And they deposit all the seeds for the feces onto the islands and that's manure for invasives to grow. So our biggest challenge is during nesting season and after bird nesting season to monitor for invasive plants growth. And so what are the types of plants that are these invasive species on that island? Um, so a couple of years ago, we found um, papaya growing. It probably would not have survived. The island is so harsh. <laughs> but yeah, there was a pile of dung and then um, a papaya was growing from it. So we had to take that down. There is another one called chromalina. It's a wild bush, which has a pretty white flower, but it is also very susceptible to fires during the dry season. Mm. So anytime we see them on the Maria Islands, we have to take them down right away. So with that species, can you say the name of it again? The chromalina? Chromalina. So that one, that threat is, of course, like you said, the wildfires during... Um, the warm, the drier season, but for something like the papaya, and you know, I love papaya. I'm sure a lot of I people do. Papaya. <laughs> like I, I always think this, the definition of invasive species obviously is by geography, right? Like where yeah. you find these particular species. So hearing that papaya is invasive on this island, what are, how, how was that determined? If you can share on that, like what, what would that do if you were to let a papaya tree grow on the island? So the potential of a papaya tree growing on Maria Islands is that it becomes food for any rodents that potentially gets to the island. And that's just only it. <laughs> yeah, so we try to limit the food source so that um, should, in case um, a rat is supposed to get onto the island and does not access any of our bait stations, that food is not readily available, although all reptiles will be food. But then we don't want to... Um, encourage another food source. So speaking of food sources, what are some of the things that the St. Lucian racer eats on this island? So the St. Lucian racer is at the top of the food chain on Maria Island. So they would eat the St. Lucian whiptail, which is a ground lizard, which coincidentally bears the colors of our national flag. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so they would eat the juvenile um, Weeptails, they would eat the ground. There's another type of ground lizard called the gymnophimus. And then we have pygmy geckos under the leaf litter. So they would eat all of those and the Salusha anole, which is our native tree anole. So they would eat all of that. You said the owl? Anole. Anole. Oh, I know. Oh. 
Yes, no, sorry. <laughs> I have to, no, it's okay. I have to mentally keep remembering to switch what accent I'm listening to. Definitely, I was like, they eat owls, you know? I was shocked, I was like. Like, how big are they? <laughs> and I was gonna say, in those pictures, you must have like the babies because how big, how big do the St. Lucia racers get? Um, so the St. Lucia racers don't get big. They get um, at least three feet in length, but they're not um, big snakes. Mm. And so, and just to take it back a bit, I know one of the things you were saying is that people often kill the snakes because they can't differentiate. You know, snake is a snake is a snake. I'm going to kill the snake I see. About how much um, mortality would you say that these St. Lucian racers face from locals? So um, the good thing is that um, Maria Islands is vested in the St. Lucian National Trust for safekeeping as a nature reserve. So visits to the island is only done through the Semester National Trust with a guide. Locals are not allowed to go and recreate on the island as and when they please. We do have um, support from the Semester Marine Unit that at any one time, and my office is directly across from Maria Island, so we monitor straight from my office. And um, we've also had community support in in the fact that over the weekends when I'm not at the office, if any member of the community is to see a vessel docked at Maria, they would find a way to contact me and then I would contact Marine Unit who would go out and remove them. So yeah, um, no prosecution has have ever happened to the cemetery racer. And the snake is so rare. I think I've only probably eight times in the seven years I'm working the trust. Oh, wow. And yeah, so, so even going onto the island, it's not a guarantee that you see it. And so, and sorry if you had mentioned this before, but just to, again, like I am backtracking, right? So uh, was the St. Lucian racer ever on mainland or? So historically, it's, it is said that the St. Lucian racer was on the mainland. The introduction during the sugar industry, it okay. wiped out the population on the mainland. There is also historical evidence to point to the fact that Maria Islands was joined to the mainland at some point, and then it collapsed and it became a standalone island. So that's how it's explained for the Selmatia Racer to be on Maria Islands right now. Right. I think I think that's so interesting because oftentimes that's also how you get like I think speciesation or hybridization yes. or when they get separated geographically, 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 I might have to like edit that out. <laughs> but when, <laughs> when things get separated, geographically, I can't say this word. Geographically, maybe I should keep it in. Geographically, you find that the species start to differentiate and it seemed as if the ones that obviously were on mainland didn't survive. And, and is that because of people, you think? Yeah. Yeah, it's because of people and the introduction of the small Asian mongoose, which was deemed back in the sugar industry to control the population of snakes. Mm. That didn't work. Yeah, and so are these mongooses mongoose? They- <laughs> How do you pluralize mongoose? <laughs> I don't know. Do, are they invasive then? Are they, are they currently they are invasive? invasive? They're invasive. Okay. They were brought into St. Lucia. And do you find that when it comes to managing your MPA, that that's one of the invasive species that you also have to tackle? 
Um, not within my MPA. It's not okay. a problem within my MPA. And so you said that you can see Maria Island, Maria Island, from well, it's two, so it's Maria Islands. Maria Islands. You can yeah. see it from your desk. What's that like working that close to your MPA? I know a lot of times conservationists don't get the opportunity to actually be next to or near the MPA that they're protecting because it's typically so far, you know, from civilization. Like, how how has that been? Like, and I know one of the advantages you said was the fact that you can see if someone's docked there. That makes monitoring so easy. So, are there you think any other advantages that you get from that? Are there any disadvantages maybe from working so close to your MPA? The biggest advantage is how I dress to come to work. <laughs> Working directly within my MPA, right there on the beachfront, I am allowed to come to work in shorts because at any one point, I have to leave the office to do a on the beach. At any one point, I may have to jump into a vessel to get onto Maria Islands to go and sort out some vessel that's illegally docked or something of that sort. At one point, I used to have a whole change of swimsuit in my desk. <laughs> yeah. And then I just realized, you know what? I can come to work in short pants. So that's one of the biggest advantages for me. Um, on a conservation level, it also puts me in a position to make monitoring that much easier. So when I get a report or when I see something amiss, I can take care of it right away as opposed to having to get a third party um, report of it and then put things in action to go out and take care of it. I am right there within the MPA and the stakeholders within the MPA knows that we're the ones um, managing the area. So any infractions, they would come and report to us. And do you find that, you said you have community support, would you say that your community support is strong in the fact that they will report like 24 seven, like if even if you guys don't see it, they always report on each other or is there some of that whole, I know there can be like community members having bias towards who they really report. Um, you know, we're living on small islands, you get that those issues, right? Like, you know everyone. So here it is now, someone may report on another one or the person, you know, like, do you ever find people um, having these issues when it comes to reporting and monitoring the area? So, so typical example is we have a certain monitoring program within the MPE. We have local divers who poach the turtle eggs and they sometimes report on each other, especially if they're not buddy pals, they will get <laughs> one diver come in and report that another diver has poached a turtle nest. And um, it works in our favor because you now have two sides of divers reporting against each other and it helps us in monitoring and stopping the likelihood of turtle nests being poached. That's... <laughs> At least it's beneficial, um, but you know, as we know, with small island communities, it's always a very close social connection as well. So there can definitely be some like MPA management challenges when it comes to that. Um, but what would you say, you know, being a Caribbean island, um, as beautiful and unique as St. Lucia is, I've had the pleasure of visiting there once. What would you say for your MPA is one of the biggest challenges um, or one of the biggest experiences you've had that you probably you know, say this was a challenge I learned from, or this is a challenge that still is ongoing? So our biggest challenge within the MPA would be user conflicts. Um, as you know, we have certain livelihood groups benefiting from the natural resources within the MPA. Um, I could use fishermen as an example. The waters surrounding Maria Islands and a marine reserve 
and over the years, the, through the fisheries department, fishermen were given permits to cast their nets to um, fish within the waters. Um, we have had dialogue with the fisheries department and the fishermen to help us in our biosecurity protocols for Maria Island, because in the past, the fishermen would go access the island, well, access the beach on the island, and leave all the food scraps behind, yeah, and walk away. So we've had dialogues with the fisheries department where now the permit includes that they're not supposed to leave any litter on the island. They're not, they're only allowed onto the beach of the island and anything they bring, they need to take back with them. And they're not even allowed food on the island. Hmm. And should any of this be reported after, they will not be issued permits to them. And, and this has, has worked a lot. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. What, what were some of the reasons you'd say, like when you, maybe if you had spoken to fishermen that they would leave these things on the island? Like before oh. the climate change. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would not want to bash my country like that, but when it comes to solutions, that we have a big problem with garbage disposal. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely a challenge with a lot of Caribbean countries because we also have that issue with any, a lot of waste disposal issues that we have. And I think it just comes from the nature of, of the geography of our islands, you know, like we're not like some of these larger continents that, that have the different types of rock formations where they can actually properly organize trash. So everything yeah. is at risk of either leaching or somehow making its way to the ocean. Making it to the ocean. Yep. So yeah, it's not unique to St. Lucia. I mean, you guys probably do have unique issues in that, but it, waste disposal is an issue across the Caribbean um, just because like everything is coastal, everything yep. can end up in the ocean. So yep. it is a massive issue for us within the MPE. We have um, persons dumping illegally at the mangroves, at Makote mangroves, which essentially will end up in the ocean after heavy rains. And the biggest challenge for us is the garbage dump site is across the road from Makote Mangroves. So they're literally driving the same distance to go yeah. and dump it within the mangrove. I know. <laughs> Dumping with a <the> view. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yeah, definitely a lot of challenges. And I know you, you mentioned how you guys have the migratory seabirds. What types of seabirds do you guys get? So um, I will start with my favorite of all seabirds, which is the American oyster catcher. Ooh, very <laughs> yes. nice. I love those birds. Um, we get all types of the um, turns coming across. We get brown noddies and brown boobies coming. Um, there's the frigate birds coming. Well, those are not migratory. They're resident. And yeah, we have tropical birds coming also to... Um, Trying to remember the name. Oh my God, Lashanti. You moved me from hoops straight into birds. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know why? You know why? Because we can stick with the oyster catcher since you said that one's your favorite, right? Yeah. So who would win in a fight between an oyster catcher and an octopus? Oh, I know. <laughs> um, as much as the American oyster catcher is my favorite. <laughs> and an octopus would win as much as I love to eat octopuses. <laughs> they are delicious. 
I yeah, I've definitely. Uh, I think a few years ago, I had grilled octopus for the first time, and you've got to be kidding me. Well, you know, I had marlin for the first time a couple of years ago too. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> okay, you know, but now an octopus, it is definitely tasty. Very intelligent animal. Yes, very intelligent, and this is why I'm putting all my money on the octopus winning an oyster catcher. All right, good to and know. We have eight tentacles fighting the feather birds. That's true. That is true. It's against one. <laughs> no, they got they have two wings. You know, their wings can kind of help a bit, right? And the legs. So that's yeah. four. You give the them four. Is strong enough to decide I'm pulling you underwater with me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts that you'd want to leave for our viewers, which would be other people in the MPA network that you may want to share? Like, you know, some words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. As with everything else, everybody needs words of wisdom. Um, what can I say to my fellow um, members within the MPA Connect? We need to be resilient. We need to be strong. We need to continue fighting the cause because without um, MPAs, I don't know what our coastline will look like. And we need to push to get money, um, governmental agencies to probably create more MPAs within our islands. Mm. You definitely say MPAs are very, very important. They are very, very important. Very, very, very. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Safira, for doing this wonderful interview with me. It was really a pleasure to have you. My Cam Pam sister. <laughs> the best group ever. <laughs> Cam Pam 2018. And to all our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of MPA Connections.